For our next sermon in the series from Genesis, let's turn to Genesis uh, chapter 3. We'll read the whole chapter together. The text is the first six verses of the chapter. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, Then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to me to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow... Thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, And thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life, 
and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the beginning, as we have seen, God created a good world full of good creatures. God did not create evil creatures or an evil world, but a good world. And that includes God's creation of man. God created man good in his own image, male and female. And that not only means that in the beginning, man and woman were healthy and strong and beautiful and handsome, but especially it means that Adam and Eve were holy and righteous and obedient to God and loving and kind to each other. God only expressed one prohibition to them. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he said, you shall not eat the fruit of that tree. For in the day that you eat the fruit of that tree, you will surely die. That was the only prohibition that God spoke to them. There was no other prohibition. God spoke that word to Adam. He spoke that word before he created Eve. You can read of that in chapter 2. On the sixth day after he created Adam and put him into the garden, he pointed out those two trees in the midst of the garden, and he told Adam, don't eat the fruit of that tree. Then he created Eve out of Adam's rib. But we can see from the passage that we have read that Adam must have told his wife rather quickly probably immediately, about that prohibition. We may not eat the fruit of that tree. That's the only thing the Lord has told us we may not do. We must not eat that fruit. It's also evident from reading of the story that the event of our text must have happened fairly quickly in the history of the world, fairly quickly after the creation of Adam and Eve. We saw that God created everything in the first six days. On the sixth day, he made man. On the seventh day, he rested. It's very well possible that the very next week, the second week of history, was when this happened. The text leaves the impression that it happened right away. Almost as soon as God created the man and the woman, this event happened. But we cannot know for sure when. What we do know for sure is that the event of our text is one of the most significant events in the whole history of the world, of the human race. In Reformed circles and Reformed theology, we sometimes list four of the greatest moments in the history of the world to be creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. The creation of the world in the beginning, 
the fall of mankind into sin, redemption through our Lord Jesus Christ, and the final consummation of the new heavens and the new earth in the future. This is one of those great events. The fall was the introduction or injection into the human race of sin and guilt and depravity, which was imputed to the whole human race. The fall brought the curse of death into the world, and the fall had an effect on the whole of the creation, so that after the fall, the creation was cursed. But this terrible, terrible event came as no shock to the Lord himself. There are no things that come as a shock to the Lord. There is nothing that frustrates his plans and his purposes. This was not a major setback for God. As if he had all of these beautiful, wonderful plans for his creation, and then, oh no, look what happened. Rather, God himself had planned the very things that happened, as recorded in our text. God planned this event because he had as an ultimate goal to glorify himself as the God of all the universe in the highest possible way, not just as a creator, but as a savior. God's ultimate purpose was to bring glory to himself as a God of mercy and grace. And so his purpose was to send his own son into the world, Jesus Christ. And through his cross and resurrection and creation of a new heavens and a new earth in the future, that God would glorify himself in the highest possible way. What we find in our text we can apply to ourselves personally. We ought to see ourselves there in Adam and Eve. And we ought to understand then that all of the sins that we commit on a day-to-day basis come as no shock to the Lord. We do not frustrate his plans and purposes when we sin. God already knows every sin that we will commit. God has even determined that we will commit those sins. And that doesn't make God responsible for those sins. We are responsible. God has determined that we would sin, knows that we will sin, but that sin is something that he hates. He determines the sin as something that he hates so that he may glorify his power and grace in delivering such wretched sinners as us from our sins. So as we come to the text now, let's not look down our noses at Adam and Eve as if they have done something that we would never do, but rather let's see ourselves in them and remember that if we were there, we would have done the same thing. And in fact, we do the same thing every day. In the beginning, man's fall. That's the title of the sermon. We're going to look, first of all, at the serpent tempter. Secondly, the woman's fall. And then thirdly, the man's sin as our head. In Genesis 3, verse 1, we read, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And no doubt that is why the devil selected this creature, this animal, as the instrument that he would use to tempt man to sin. The devil being a spirit 
had need of a physical and visible creature in order to reach the woman, because at this time the man and the woman were still perfect. They were still upright in their own spirits, and therefore he had no point of contact with Adam and Eve in their own spirits. He had to approach them through a physical creature, and he chose an animal, and he chose the serpent because it was more subtle than all the other beasts of the field. The serpent was one of the creatures, animals, that God made on the sixth day of creation when he made the beasts of the field and the cattle and the creeping things. The serpent was not yet one of the creeping things when God made it because the serpent would not do any creeping or slithering until after the fall when God cursed it to go on its belly. In the beginning... The serpent probably walked on feet or possibly even flew with wings. We really don't know what the serpent looked like or how it behaved, but we know it didn't slither on its belly in the beginning. The serpent was a very subtle animal. The word subtle can mean clever, intelligent, smart. It was the most clever of all the animals in the beginning. Perhaps not so anymore today, Although, when we think of the snakes slithering around in the bush, and we think of their cleverness, we think of how cunning they can be to creep up on their prey, and then at just the perfect moment to pounce on that prey, to have their food. But as we said in the beginning, the snake did not slither on the ground, and in the beginning, the snake did not eat meat, but like all the other animals, it ate plants, berries, nuts, and other of God's creatures, but not animals. But that was not the cleverness of the serpent that is mentioned in the text. The serpent was very clever in the beginning. Very, very clever. And that's why the devil chose it. Perhaps so that it would be less of a shock when he came to tempt the woman. Now the cleverness of the serpent was not at the same level as the intelligence of Adam and Eve. It was, after all, still a serpent. It was a beast. It was an animal, a brute creature. It was not made in God's image, like Adam and Eve. The serpent was not ordinarily capable of speaking in human language. The serpent was not ordinarily capable of conversing with Adam and Eve about theological topics and moral issues, about whether God exists and whether there is good and evil and all those things. And yet, we come to our text, and the Word of God tells us that this particular serpent did those very things. But the explanation can only be that this particular serpent had come under the control and influence of a higher intelligence, a creature of greater intelligence, superior cleverness even to that serpent, and took possession of it, and made use of it. But that serpent was a very clever creature. And as some have suggested, it's possible that the serpent in the beginning was able to speak in human language, if so taught by a higher intelligence. Think today of the parrot, which is able to speak human words, if a human will teach the parrot how to speak those words. Today, all a snake can do is hiss with its forked tongue. But in the beginning, the serpent was capable of 
speaking, forming those words, if a higher intelligence would teach it. And that is what happened. Moses tells the story in the text as if it was all the serpent. He doesn't mention that higher spiritual intelligence that made use of the serpent. He only speaks of the serpent and presents it almost as if the serpent could speak and the serpent could converse about theological and moral topics and did that very thing. In fact, Moses presents the serpent as if this animal was evil. This animal was a creature irreconcilably opposed to its creator. But we know that wasn't the case. The serpent was a good creature just like all the other animals. The serpent was not a moral, rational creature. The serpent had come under the control and influence of a higher spiritual creature that was irreconcilably opposed to God. Why does Moses not mention the devil here in this passage? He never mentions him by name or any of his names. He only speaks here of that serpent. The answer to that is, at least in part, that Moses was inspired by God to write in the Old Testament era. And in that era, God taught his people through pictures, figures, types, and shadows. God's will was not to reveal all spiritual truths to his people right away in the beginning, but gradually, progressively, more and more, to unfold and to reveal the spiritual realities. We find who this serpent really was revealed throughout the rest of Scripture. For example, Isaiah the prophet, in chapter 27, verse 1, he speaks of the Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, the dragon that is in the sea. And he speaks of God bringing down judgment on that old crooked serpent. But it really waited for the New Testament until the full light of God's truth was shed on who that serpent, in fact, was. Our Lord Jesus is our chief prophet. When he came into the world, he made very clear who that serpent was or who was in that serpent. In John 8, verse 44, Jesus tells the Pharisees that they are the children of their father, the devil. And Jesus says that he is the father of lies. And so it is clear Jesus means to refer to the serpent or the one in the serpent. He is the father of lies, a murderer from the beginning, Jesus said. And there is no truth in him because he is a liar through and through. The name devil means a slanderer, a deceiver, a liar. And that is his very nature. That calls to mind, too, what Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse 33 to the Pharisees. He said, You serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? By calling the Pharisees serpents, or a generation of vipers, a viper being an example of a poisonous serpent, Jesus was indicating that they were the servants of Satan. And so we learn from our Lord that whenever someone calls someone else 
a serpent or a viper, they are saying about that person that he is a servant of Satan and that he cannot escape the damnation of hell except God bring him to repentance. In Isaiah, or rather in Revelation 12, John sees a vision of a great red dragon with many heads and horns. And that great red dragon is cast out of heaven. And John says, He is that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Who is the serpent? Or rather, who was in the serpent? A higher spiritual intelligence known as the devil and Satan and the great red dragon. Who is Satan then? Satan was evidently an angel because in Revelation we're told that he was cast out of heaven with his fellow angels. And therefore, the devil or Satan was originally an angel of light. And many interpreters understand Isaiah 14 to be a reference to him when it speaks of a creature called Lucifer, a bright star. Lucifer was a creature, an angel of light God created in the beginning. Originally very beautiful, powerful, righteous, and holy, he stood before the face of God in heaven. We don't know when he was created, but he was created with all the other angels. He was created sometime during the creation week. And he was an archangel, one of the greatest and most powerful of all the angels, Very beautiful, stunning, glorious. But this Lucifer became proud and discontent with his place in heaven. And that evidently happened very quickly in the history of heaven. If Isaiah 14 is referring to Satan, then it teaches us what happened there when Satan fell. It teaches us that Lucifer wanted to be God. He was not content to be an angel. He was not content to be a a powerful, beautiful, glorious servant of the Lord. He said, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will be like the Most High. And in his pride, he gathered a host of the angels to his side, and they rebelled against Jehovah of hosts. In their foolish pride, they thought they could topple God from his throne. And Satan could set himself on that throne in his lust to be the king of kings and lord of lords over the whole universe. But no one can oppose God. No one can frustrate or overthrow him from his throne. So when Satan attempted to overthrow God, God cast him down to the earth, cast him out of heaven with one-third of the angels who became demons, and he became Satan the devil. The name Satan means adversary or enemy. That is his nature. He is a slanderer and deceiver. He is the enemy and adversary of God. Sometime before the fall of Adam and Eve, Satan was cast out of heaven to the earth. And Satan was not content 
merely to rule over those demons. Satan wanted a greater kingdom, a greater dominion, a wider influence. And that was his motivation to come to Adam and Eve. He wanted to have dominion over mankind. He cast his eye upon the human beings whom God set and gave dominion over all of the animals and all of the plants over the whole earth as king and queen in the Garden of Eden. He set his lustful pride eye upon them. And he wanted to bring them down as God brought him down. He knew how to do that. He reasoned, I was cast down from heaven because I desired and sought to be God. How can I bring them down? I will tempt them to desire and to seek to be God. And then God will cast them down as well, and they will be my slaves. Such was the reasoning of Satan. So he sought out among the animals a creature that was very clever. He found this serpent, and he took control of it. And he moved it into the midst of the garden and waited for the woman to approach. What we learn in this passage of Scripture is already very practical, isn't it, to us? Because we know that this serpent still exists today. This devil, this Satan, still roams about today. And he still seeks to tempt God's people today, you and me. We probably don't think often enough about the reality and the presence of Satan in our daily lives. But we ought to. We ought to be mindful of him. The scriptures tell us to be vigilant, to beware. Scriptures tell us that we don't really wrestle with flesh and blood, with visible powers. We wrestle, we struggle, we fight with invisible spiritual forces. That is Satan and his host of demons. We must put on the whole armor of God and take up the sword of the Spirit and the shield of faith. Those are spiritual weapons to fight against a spiritual enemy. God had told Adam and Eve, to dress the garden and keep it. Keep it. Guard it. Protect it. And as we have seen before, God calls us as well as fathers and mothers, husbands and wives, to guard our gardens, our homes, families, marriages, churches. There is an enemy about. And his desire is to set us against God and in favor of himself. So the serpent approached the woman. The devil drove the serpent into the midst of the garden. There in the middle of the garden of Eden were those two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan knew that man was forbidden to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He knew that this was the place where the battle had to be fought and won. This was the one prohibition God had given To Adam and Eve, this was the thing he had to get them to do. He had to trick and deceive them here in the midst of the garden. But he approached Eve, not Adam. Why did he not approach 
Adam? Why did he approach Eve? The answer to that question is not that Eve was spiritually or morally weaker than Adam, and therefore she was an easier prey for the serpent. The scripture does teach us in 1 Peter 3 that husbands are to honor our wives as the weaker vessel. We are to take care of them, love them, protect them, honor them as the weaker vessel, but that does not mean necessarily spiritually or morally weaker. Adam and Eve were on the same plane morally. They were both made in the image of God. They were both righteous, both holy, both devoted to God. They were created that way. Neither of them was weak spiritually. They were both perfect. Why then did the serpent approach Eve and not Adam? The answer has to be found in the fact that Adam was the head of the whole human race. And Eve was not. God made Adam first. Adam was the head. Adam represented all of us, men and women, down through all the ages of history. Adam bore on his shoulders the tremendous weight and responsibility of headship for the whole human family. Eve did not bear that weight. And as the head... God had given the prohibition to Adam before Eve was even created. God had said to Adam, directly, personally, Adam, you don't eat the fruit of that tree. Eve did not hear God say that to her personally. He said it to Adam. And then Adam told his wife. The devil took note of all these things. And the the devil who was much more clever and subtle than any serpent ever was, realized, this is how I can operate and approach the man through his beloved wife. The wife that God has given to him as a helper, a friend and companion, but who doesn't bear that weight of headship and who only heard the prohibition secondhand. She is the one I will approach. This task will be hard enough As it is, he he knew, because they were both morally perfect. But he took into consideration those circumstances and decided to approach Eve. We find practical application there too, don't we, men? We who have been given the position of headship in our marriages, in our families, leadership in the church, the school, We ought to take warning. The devil aims at the head. He knows that if he can bring down the head, he can bring down the whole body. If he can compromise the head, he can destroy the whole family. The devil will attack the head, but he will do so in very clever ways through people that we love, people who are close to us and who mean a lot to us. We have to be aware, be vigilant. And as wives, we ought to beware as well that the devil doesn't use us to tempt our husband or our fathers or our grandfathers to sin. The devil is very subtle and clever, and he will use any means he can to bring down leaders. We've seen that a lot in our time. How many ministers, elders, 
husbands, fathers, have been brought down in our present time through all kinds of scandals and sins that have been exposed. We must beware. The devil wants to bring down heads and leaders in the church, family, and home. So the devil moved into the serpent and moved him into the midst of the garden and waited for his opportunity. Probably he had to wait for an opportunity because at least I imagine that Adam and Eve, in the love of their marriage, were generally together, walking together in the garden, working together, talking to each other. I imagine, too, that when they went into the midst of the garden to eat the fruit of the tree of life, they probably did that together, too, most of the time. And so the devil probably had to wait for an opportunity, but he was very willing to wait. And so he waited there in the midst of the garden, and the opportunity came, because God in his providence was governing all these things. The opportunity came. He found Eve alone, probably going to eat the fruit of the tree of life. And he launched his attack. When the devil started to speak through the serpent, we don't read in the text that Eve seemed at all to be surprised when she heard a serpent talking. Some are led to believe from that that serpents, after all, were able to speak in human language. But probably she just knew that the serpent was a very clever animal, but she also knew that there was an enemy out there. God had told them to dress and guard the garden. No doubt when she heard the serpent speaking, she knew that this was that enemy which the Lord had warned them against. And so she's not all that surprised to hear it speaking. In fact, when he asks that first question, she must have been intrigued and hooked by the question already. Because if she knew this was the enemy of God, she should have immediately turned and ran out of that place. She should have gone to her husband, Adam, for help in fighting this battle. But she didn't. She stayed and she listened and she reasoned and had conversation with the enemy of God. And some have said, that is when the fall began. Right there, when she listened to God's enemy and entered into polite conversation with him, that's when the fall began. The question that the serpent asked was this, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? You notice immediately that that's a very manipulative question. If you have ever met anyone who is manipulative or deceitful, you can immediately detect this is a very deceitful question laced with deceit and with the intention of instilling doubt and questions in her heart. Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Did God really say that? Are you sure that God said that? He began with a question rather than a statement or a direct temptation, and that shows his subtlety and his cleverness. He often begins 
with questions. Did God really say that? Notice what he asked. Did God say that ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? It's possible that he had two different meanings in mind when he asked that question. It's possible in the first place that he was exaggerating God's command by suggesting or asking whether God had said that they may not eat any tree in this garden, not a single fruit from a single tree in the whole garden. Is that what God said? If that was the meaning of his question, you would think that Eve would have immediately understood that this was false because, after all, she and Adam had been plucking and eating the fruits of the garden for a long time. They had been eating many of the different fruits of the different trees in the garden, and they had never dropped down dead. They had never experienced God's wrath. And yet, even there, you can sense the subtlety in that question, if that is what he meant. Did God say that you may not eat any tree any of the fruits of any of the trees in this garden? That question implies the idea that God is very harsh. God is a cruel God. How could you serve and love such a God as that? But it's possible that the devil had this in mind by the question. Did God really say that you may not eat of every tree of the garden, so you're allowed to eat of many of the trees, but you're not allowed to eat of every tree? Is that what God said? Are you sure God said that? And by that question, he's attempting to instill doubt in her mind. Doubt about what God actually said. Did God really say that? What is God trying to hide from you? Does God have a secret that he's not telling you? Why is God prohibiting you to eat of one of the trees in this garden? The devil tempts us with questions like that all the time, doesn't he? All of the time, the devil is bombarding us with questions aimed at our hearts, piercing darts, attempting to instill doubts and questions in our minds. Did God really say that in the Bible? Are you really sure that's what the Bible means? Are you sure that God has said this doctrine or that doctrine? This commandment or that commandment? The devil uses professors in the worldly universities to ask those questions. The devil uses actors and actresses, people in positions of influence and power, to send those questions our way. Sometimes he causes them to arise in our own sinful flesh. He whispers, he slithers with his forked tongue into our ears because he now has access to our spirits, which are fallen. And he suggests or asks whether God has really said those things. When Eve replied, we can already see that she's beginning to slip and to fall from her place of righteousness. The woman said unto the serpent, verse 2, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. 
Now, when you first read that, it sounds as if Eve is taking God's side. It sounds as if she is defending what God said, and she is speaking the truth. She is speaking to the serpent what God spoke to Adam and what Adam spoke to her. She is speaking the truth, it seems. And she is speaking the truth in part. We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. She's denying what he is suggesting. No, 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 no. God gave us all the trees of the garden and said we may freely eat of those trees. That's what God said. But there is one tree in the midst of the garden, and God has said about that tree, ye may not eat of it. That was all true. But then she added something. Neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. God did not say that. All that God said was, ye shall not eat of it. God said nothing about examining it, smelling it, touching it, looking at it. But she added that. Why did she add that? Ye shall not eat it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. We get the sense from those words that she is making God out to be a little bit harsher than he was, to be a little bit stricter than he was. She is making his prohibition to be something more than it was. And why is she doing that? Because the devil has been successful already to instill seeds of doubt in her mind. Not seeds of doubt about whether God exists, Not seeds of doubt about whether God actually spoke to them. But seeds of doubt about whether God was really good to them. That was what the devil was attempting to convince her of. God might be real, but he's not as good as you think. He's not good to you. He doesn't really care about you. He's not interested in your well-being. God said we may not even touch it, lest we die. God did not say that. She began to doubt God's goodness. We can detect in her answer just a little bit, perhaps, of resentment toward God for refusing to allow them to eat the fruit of this one tree. The devil was suggesting that. God is not good. He will not let you eat of every tree. He will not give you ultimate freedom. He will not allow you to decide to eat out of whatever tree you want. God has restricted you. God is limiting you. God has put a law upon you. Because God is not really good toward you. The devil tempts us with that all the time, doesn't he? Tempts us to think God is not really good. God might be there. He might exist You might have really spoken in the Bible, but God doesn't care about me. God's not really interested in my benefit and well-being. The devil tempts us to think that. That's not true. But she began to doubt. She began to slip into the sin of unbelief. The sin of unbelief is one of the root sins of many other sins. As soon as you stop believing what God has said, holding it to be true, as soon as you slip from that and begin to doubt what God has said, 
and to think that maybe God is not everything He says He is, then immediately you slide into all kinds of other sins because you don't trust His Word. Doubt and unbelief are sins. We are called to believe all that God says. We must believe what God says. If we cannot believe God, then what can we believe and who can we believe? If we think that God is an evil deceiver, then we are of all men most miserable and there is no hope at all for anyone. We must believe that God is true and faithful and good. Unbelief gives rise to a hatred of God. As soon as you doubt God's goodness towards you, then you begin to resent him because he is good to others. Then you begin to think that God is an evil man or an evil God, a tyrant. You begin to think, you begin to hate him. At this point, the devil knew that he had her right where he wanted her. And that's why the very next thing that comes out of the mouth of the serpent is not so subtle anymore, not so indirect, but a direct attack on her heart with a lie out of hell. Verse 4, The serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, your eyes will be opened. You will be as gods, knowing good and evil. That was the first lie that was spoken in history. That's why the devil is the father of lies, right there. The first word that he spoke was a question. The second was a lie, a blatant, gross lie. Ye shall not surely die. What God had said was, you shall surely die. And that was true. Everything God speaks is true. God never lies. But the devil always lies. You will not surely die. The devil was accusing God of being a slanderer. God is the liar. He is the one you must be aware of. That was a very deadly lie. The devil was the first heretic. He was the first false teacher. He was teaching a new doctrine of God, a new theology. The original theology and the true theology is that God is good. And God is true. The devil's theology was, God is evil. God is a liar. You can't trust him. God is secretive. God is deceptive. The devil was saying, God calls good evil, and he calls evil good. The devil was suggesting to her that God was hiding something from them. God had created this tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden, and he wouldn't let them eat of it. The devil suggested because that tree bears a fruit that has a power to make you know good and evil and be like God. Remember, that was the very thing that he wanted. He wanted to be like God, he wanted to be God. And he tempted her with that very same 
ambition. If you eat that fruit, you will be God. That's the better translation of the text in verse 5. Your eyes shall be opened and ye shall be as God. You will be God. That's why God doesn't want you to eat of that fruit. He doesn't want any rivals. He doesn't want any other gods. He wants to be God all by himself. He's hiding from you the secret, the key to the greatest thing you could possibly become. You can become a God. And he knew very well that was not true because he had tried and failed. But in his lust for dominion, he tempted her with that lie. He even used some of the terminology that God himself used. God had called it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the devil tempted her that by eating it you will know good and evil. But not in the sense that God meant. Rather in this sense, you will be God. Now Eve should have immediately recognized that this was a lie. After all, Who is more likely to be the deceiver here? The God who gave her existence? The God who called her forth out of Adam's rib? The God who gave her life? The God who was her God, who loved her, who fellowshiped with her, who rested with her? Or this serpent that suddenly had walked into the midst of the garden? She should have known that The serpent was the liar, not God. Besides, she should have thought to herself that if this is true, if God created a tree with fruit that can make us into gods, but God doesn't want us to eat that fruit because he doesn't want us to become gods, why did God create the tree in the first place? Why would God even create the possibility of us becoming gods by eating this fruit? If she had thought about it, she would have realized. But she had become willfully ignorant at this point. She was already falling. She had already given heed to the words of the devil. She was already doubting and resenting and just starting to hate God for forbidding her to eat that fruit. And now when she heard that eating it will make her a god, she was filled with pride. Pride rooted in ingratitude. Ingratitude for all that God had done for her so far. And pride at the prospect of becoming greater than God so that she doesn't have to listen to him anymore, submit to him, obey him. She can be set free from the shackles of submission to her husband, of submission to God, of obedience, and be a goddess herself. This was also the beginning of the sin of pride. And the devil tempts all of us daily to the sin of pride. What is it that we human beings want more than anything else? It is to be absolutely free to determine for ourselves what we think is good and evil and to punish the people who hurt us and to exalt ourselves over everyone else to have for ourselves all the power, all the control, all the glory, 
all the pleasure. That's the deepest lust of our flesh. And that was the next sin that was born. From doubt and unbelief came resentment and hatred. And from that came ingratitude and pride. And finally, lust. We are told that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she looked at the fruit again. Probably she and Adam had walked past that tree many times and barely glanced at it, had no interest in it. But now she looked at that fruit and she saw, ah, that is beautiful fruit. The fruit looks very delicious. But it wasn't just the beauty of the fruit or the deliciousness of the fruit that she lusted after. Rather, it was a tree to be desired to make one wise. By that is meant, she saw that this fruit would make her a god. And that was when she finally disobeyed. Disobedience and rebellion was the final sin. She took the fruit and she ate it. In the taking and eating of that fruit, we are to see the final culmination of all of those internal sins. External sins are always the product of internal thoughts, internal desires, unbelief, doubt, resentment, bitterness, pride, ingratitude, lust. That leads to disobedience. But the story doesn't end there. At that point, Eve was totally depraved. She ate the fruit, and God said, in the day that you eat the fruit, you will die. She ate it, and she died. She became spiritually dead. But in her depravity, she couldn't remain Just like the devil couldn't remain in his depravity. He had to bring others down with him. And so she plucked another one of those fruits and went off to find Adam in the garden and brought it to him. And the account here is very brief about that. It simply says, She took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. But we are to understand there that all of those sins that she committed, he also committed. She didn't just bring the fruit to him and say, look, here's a delicious fruit, eat it. She told him what that fruit was. He knew what that fruit was. It was the forbidden fruit. She told him the whole story of what the devil had told her. And he believed it. He doubted God. He resented God. He hated God. He became proud and ungrateful and lusted for that fruit and took it, the forbidden thing, and ate it and became totally depraved as well. Although the account here in Genesis emphasizes the temptation and the fall of the woman, the rest of Scripture emphasizes the results of the fall of the man. The disaster that came upon the human race was not the fall of the woman, but the fall of the man. In Romans 5, verse 12, the Apostle Paul wrote, 
As by one man sin entered into the world, not by one woman. Yes, in 1 Timothy 2, he does mention that the woman was beguiled and not the man. But in Romans 5, he emphasizes that it was by one man that sin entered the world. In a certain sense, sin entered the world when the woman sinned. But if that was the end of the story, and if Adam had remained upright, the human race would not have fallen into sin. A sinful mother would have produced righteous children. That was not the end of the story. It was by the sin of Adam that the human race became guilty. Adam was the head of the human race. He was our first father. He was the first human being. He represented us all. When he disobeyed, when he died, when he became totally corrupt, that guilt of Adam was imputed to all of his children after him. As by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin... And so death passed upon all men. Why? For that all have sinned. Human depravity does not just spread sort of organically and physically through the human race from father to son. Original sin means that Adam was guilty of sin and his guilt was imputed to us. God, the judge, brought down his hammer that day of judgment on the whole human race and said, guilty, the whole human race, everyone born after this will be guilty. Why does death pass upon all men? Because all have sinned. But you say, I didn't sin, I wasn't there. But I was there in Adam. When my father sinned, I sinned. And as we said in the introduction, we don't look down our noses on our Father. We don't blame our Father as if it's His fault. But we recognize that in Him we sinned. And that's easy for us to understand because every day we commit those same sins. Every day. Doubts. Fears that shouldn't be there. Pride, bitterness, and resentment that shouldn't be there questioning of God's goodness toward us that shouldn't be there. Lust for forbidden things, covetousness that shouldn't be there, and open disobedience. We are the children of Adam and Eve. But God willed this to happen. He wasn't shocked. He wasn't caught off guard or frustrated. This was all part of his perfect plan. Because God's perfect plan was that Adam would fall so that Christ would rise up in his place. As in Adam all die, in Christ all who believe in him shall be made alive. As in Adam all were made guilty sinners, so all who belong to Christ are made righteous and are given everlasting life through faith in him. Through the sin and fall of Adam, we all became sinners. But through the death and resurrection of Christ, 
we who belong to him, became righteous. So that answers one of the hardest questions of theology, a question that I wrote, a 30-plus page paper in seminary in my dogmatics class, the question of the providence of God over the fall. The question, how can it be that our first parents, who were righteous, perfect, holy, how can it be that they fell into sin? How can a righteous, a perfectly righteous person sin? How in the world is that possible? And the scriptures teach us the answer, yes, it was the subtlety of the serpent. Scriptures teach that, the subtlety of the the devil. That comes in. Yes, it was the fact that Adam and Eve were created with a free will, able to choose the good and able to choose the evil. When we get to heaven, we will have a perfect will, which is not able to sin. We will never be able to sin ever again. But Adam and Eve didn't have that perfect will yet. They, they were perfect, but they were also able to sin. That's all true. But there's a deeper answer. The deepest answer to the mystery, which is still and always a mystery, is that God is sovereign over the fall. And that doesn't mean that he is the author of sin. He's not at fault. He's not responsible. But he was in complete control when Eve and Adam fell into sin. Why? Why did God determine that man would fall into sin? And why then did God, by his sovereign and perfectly holy providence, make sure that it happened and yet kept his hands clean? Because God had a higher purpose. His purpose with all things is the glory of his name. Why did he create this world? For his own glory. But not just for his glory. God had glory when he created the world in the beginning. He had much glory as the creator of a beautiful world. God wanted the greatest possible glory that he could imagine for himself. And God determined the greatest possible glory that I will get for myself will be not through creation, but through redemption. Man must fall so that I can save them, so that they will come to understand my grace and mercy and love on a much deeper and wider plane. That's the answer. It's a mystery, still a mystery. But the answer is to be sought in that God always seeks the greatest glory of his name. And that required the sending of his son into the world, dying on a cross, rising from the dead, and creating a new heavens and earth, so that in the way of sin and grace, light and darkness, the fall and the new creation, God would bring greatest glory to himself. Knowing that God is sovereign over all sins, including ours, does not make us careless and profane. It does not give us the attitude of thinking, well, if God is in complete control of all my sins, then I don't have to worry about my sins. Not at all. Romans 5, the apostle teaches that it was through Adam that sin entered the world. In Romans 6, he warns us against 
that notion, shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? No. When we understand that God is sovereign over all things, it gives us comfort, it gives us gratitude, but it does not make us careless. We come to hate our sins just as God hates them. We desire to flee from them because we are thankful that he has sent Christ, the last Adam, to save us from our sins. Amen. Father, we thank thee for the history thou hast taught us here in thy word. We have been humbled once again as we have considered the fall of our first parents. We're thankful for giving to us this knowledge so that it shapes our worldview, our understanding of the world and of ourselves, that we understand we live in a fallen world. We understand that we are sinners, and especially that we are directed to Christ Jesus, our Lord, that we may find all of our righteousness in him. And finding that, may we be filled with strength again to wage that battle against the serpent this coming week and to resist his temptations that he may flee from us. May all things be to the